Now we move to our panel presentation. Each panelist will provide for us a brief abstract from a longer paper that they have written on the Instrumentum Laboris. A book-length collection of the panelists' full papers treatments will be made available in the near future by Emmaus Road Publishing, and pre-order forms have been made available to you. For the sake of time, please hold your applause until all have read their abstract. Our first panelist for this evening is Father Sean O'Sheridan, TOR, JD, JCD, President of Franciscan University and Professor of Theology, Canon Law. Thank you. Pope Francis has convoked two synods of bishops to discuss the topics of marriage and the family, which as we have heard, have been under attack in recent years. At this upcoming synod, the synod fathers should affirm clearly the church's teaching on marriage and family and recognize that the suggested pastoral solution for participating in the sacramental life for those in irregular unions has been rejected on numerous occasions at various levels of the Holy See in the past. For example, in the year 2000, the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts issued an authentic interpretation of Canon 915 of the Code of Canon Law, affirming the limitation on sacramental participation for Catholics who divorce and attempt remarriage. According to this authentic interpretation, because the teaching derives from divine law, the church has no authority to change that practice, nor can she dispense from the obligations or issue directives to contradict the teaching. Significantly, this authentic interpretation invoked the danger of relativizing the precepts or emptying them of their substance. Thus a change to the church's teaching on these matters would include the risk of relativizing these heretofore absolute truths. Relativism is based on tolerance such that nothing is wrong since there are no absolute truths. In his encyclical Lumen Fidei, Pope Francis acknowledges that our society is drifting away from the recognition of absolute truths and truth becomes what is most convenient. He says, in contemporary culture, truth is what makes life easier and more comfortable. In the end, we are left, what we are left with is relativism, in which the question of universal truth, and ultimately this means the question of God, is no longer relevant. Society's efforts to redefine family marriage and its indissolubility seem to promote a more comfortable truth that is being adapted to the culture. In his encyclical Laudato Si, Pope Francis also describes relativism as the notion that there are no indisputable truths to guide our lives, and hence human freedom is limitless. He attributes a number of problems with our society to this problem of relativism. And specifically in talking about issues related to marriage and family, when he was speaking at the 2013 World Youth Day to their volunteers in Rio, he encouraged them to rebel against a culture that sees everything as temporary and believes that we are incapable of responsibility and true love. Relativizing the church's teachings on marriage and family to adapt to the culture has consequences 
far beyond the issues under consideration at this synod. Pope Francis has repeatedly urged us to acknowledge our sinfulness and seek God's mercy. This is best lived out in a society that promotes the church's understanding of marriage and family, because in the family, we learn love and respect. We learn how to say thank you and to ask forgiveness when we have caused harm. Thank you, Father Sean. Next, we have Dr. Patrick Lee, John N. and Jamie D. McAleer, Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Center for Bioethics at Franciscan University. The marriage of Christians is both a sacrament and a natural community. It does not cease to be a natural union because it also involves a sacrament. As a natural entity, marriage is the union of a man and a woman who have committed to sharing their lives on all levels of their humanity, bodily or in flesh, as well as emotionally and spiritually, in the kind of community that would be naturally fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children together, even though in some instances that fulfillment is not reached. The nature of marriage requires that it be founded on a lifelong commitment and that, it be, and that it constitute an unbreakable bond. The moral bond of marriage is the set of rights and obligations to each other initiated by the mutual consent of the spouses. That is distinct from the fullness of that community. Thus, the marital union of the spouses that they are committed to building might be more or less full without weakening the essential marital bond. No one can promise what he or she has no control over, but the marriage commitment is to voluntary conduct. Thus, marriages cannot die of themselves. The marital bond remains even though the feeling of love or the depth of the union to which the spouses have committed may erode. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Next, we have Mrs. Pia Crosby, graduate student in theology at Franciscan University, and Dr. Stephen Hildebrand, professor of patristics, who will share in reading their abstract. Our essay is on divorce and remarriage in the early church, in the evidence of the fathers, and in the developments from Vatican II to the present. This essay first investigates the scriptural and patristic sources that serve as the background for Cardinal Caspar's recent proposal for oikonomia, and with the help of Henri Cosel, highlights some mistakes that have been made in the interpretation of these sources. Secondly, after a brief word on Nicaea's mention of the twice married and Trent's teaching on the indissolubility of marriage, both points are most relevant to contemporary arguments, the essay turns to recapitulate and evaluate the proposals for oikonomia from Vatican II to the present. Both the Gospels and the letters of Paul witness to the Lord's teaching on the indissolubility of marriage, wherein adultery is a cause for separation, but not with a view toward remarriage. The fathers, moreover, can be seen nearly unanimously to have received this teaching of the Lord as such, especially when one avoids 
mistakes of interpretation. For example, that Christians could not have contradicted Roman law, they did. Or that the fathers understood the rupture of a marriage to entail the possibility of remarriage, they didn't. And avoid specious historical arguments that either ignore the findings of research that has already been done or infer gratuitous conclusions from a text's silence. Ambrosiaster alone in the patristic tradition stands for genuine divorce and remarriage. Saint Justin Martyr, Saint Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Saint Basil, who was most often erroneously placed in the company of Ambrosiaster, Saint Gregory of Nazianzus, Saint Jerome, and Saint Augustine, the list could go on. They all witnessed to the permanence of marriage and the acceptance of separation in certain circumstances, but not with a view toward remarriage. Special consideration has been given to St. Basil in order to show first that he does not endorse divorce and remarriage, and second, that he does allow an oikonomia that anticipates Cardinal Caspers in that it tolerates a divorced man cohabiting with a woman who is not his wife, but stops short of Cardinal Caspers in that there is no indication that such a man is admitted to communion. From the Melkite Archbishop Zorgby's plea at the Second Vatican Council that the Church follow the Eastern Orthodox practice of economia, there has been a vibrant debate of it among leading Western theologians and prelates. In the early 1970s, Ratzinger had come to much the same conclusion as Kaspar now has, but under the influence of John Paul II, he changed his position as prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. John Paul and Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, repeatedly reaffirmed the teaching on the indissolubility of marriage and the inability of the divorced and remarried to receive communion. In July of 2013, Pope Francis himself reopened what seemed to be a closed discussion in response to a journalist's question about communion for the divorced and remarried out of a desire to offer truly merciful pastoral care to those in very painful circumstances. In conclusion, the proposal for oikonomia raises questions about how the contemporary church can rightly make use of the customs and traditions of the ancient church. To adopt and expand this particular custom would constitute regress rather than progress in the church's understanding of marriage, and the universal call to holiness, for it denies the truth about marriage and deprives the faithful in difficult circumstances of the call to heroic virtue in imitation of Christ. Thank you very much. Next, we have Dr. Donald Ashey, Professor of Moral Theology. In Familiaris Consortio, Pope St. John Paul II, describes bearing witness to the inestimable value of the indissolubility and fidelity of marriage as one of the most precious and urgent tasks of Christian in our time. While it primarily reconfirms the good news of the definite nature of conjugal love that has Christ as its foundation and strength, 
Catholic teaching on the indissolubility of marriage also includes the explicit recognition of the immorality of divorce itself, even apart from the compounding evil of civil remarriage after divorce. However, as recent discussions of the indissolubility of marriage surrounding the Synod have suggested, few seem to find exploring the evil of divorce in itself to be an important topic, much less an urgent task, with our focus instead being shifted to the cases of those who compound the evil of divorce with a civil remarriage and their situation regarding Eucharistic communion. I propose that we redouble our efforts to address divorce as a grave offense against the dignity of the human person by approaching the question through the spousal meaning of the body articulated in St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Viewing divorce from the perspective of the spousal meaning of the body makes the evil of divorce more clearly an affront to the intrinsic value of the person and shows it to be a type of consumerism in the, in the marital sphere, which in turn likens divorce to the evil of euthanasia insofar as divorce can become a way of ridding oneself of a person by a rationally justified affront to the dignity of that person. I also propose that we need to examine more carefully how divorce can in many cases be a form of despair, especially despair in the face of suffering or a despair over the possibility of reconciliation, which would set divorce against the sacramental character of marriage and the grace that God provides to those in marriage. Finally, I would propose that by failing to address the evils of divorce clearly and adamantly, Catholics may well be undercutting our attempts to defend the dignity of the human person in other situations. And we are certainly undercutting our attempts to foster in Christian hope in general and in the sexual sphere specifically. In sum, then, we need to make recognizing the indissolubility of marriage and the evil of divorce a prominent feature of our Catholic faith and identity, something along the lines of the way in which we are pro-life and in the ways in which we speak out against the recognition of same-sex unions, precisely because the gospel requires us to defend the dignity of the human person and to foster hope among ourselves and the world around us. Thank you, Dr. Ashi. Next, we have Dr. Michael Cirilla, Professor of Systematics. In his proposal, which appears in the current Instrumentum Laboris for the 2015 Ordinary Synod, Articles 120 and following, Cardinal Walter Casper recommends a new pastoral discipline for the church in which bishops would decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether to admit divorced and remarried Catholics to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion after repenting of their divorce but without requiring the sacramental confession of adultery and a firm commitment to live in complete continence. This suggested change in pastoral discipline is presented as more merciful than the church's current practice, but in fact it constitutes a grave sin of scandal in the strict sense. This is established by looking at his proposed change of discipline in light of the following six points of immutable doctrine. First, sacramental marriage is a lifelong marital bond dissolvable only by death. Second, the act of abandonment of the active divorcer with the intention to sever this bond is gravely sinful. Third, those who attempt remarriage commit a further grave sin that Christ calls adultery 
It is also called bigamy. Fourth, reception of Holy Communion in a state of unrepentant mortal sin is itself a grave sin of sacrilege. Fifth, bishops who admit or those who direct or encourage bishops to admit unrepentant persons to Holy Communion commit a grave sin of scandal. Sixth, divorcees who repent to commit to live in complete continence and receive sacramental absolution are not in a state of mortal sin, at least with respect to the divorce and remarriage. But those who do not do so are in a state of mortal sin given full knowledge and full consent, free consent. But if a pastor discerns invincible ignorance on the part of the couple in this regard and therefore a reduction of moral culpability, it is nevertheless his solemn duty to inform them clearly of their situation and urge them to repent so that they may truly find the mercy of Christ. The Synod Fathers and the Pope ought to reject Cardinal Casper's ersatz proposal of mercy as it is found in the Instrumentum Laboris and instead unequivocally reaffirm Christ's genuine offer of mercy as found in the Church's perennial practice and doctrine and expressed by Pope St. John Paul II in Familiaris Consortio, Article, 87, uh, Article 84. Excuse me. Thank you, Dr. Cirillo. Next we have Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, Professor of Theology and Philosophy, Wyoming Catholic College, Liturgical Theology. Many factors have contributed to the precipitous decline of Catholics' knowledge of and adherence to the Church's magisterium on marriage and family. A neglected factor, however, may turn out to be the sacred liturgy, which is where Catholics most commonly encounter the Church and her teaching. It is worth asking whether tremendous changes in the form of the liturgy itself, taken together with prevailing customs of celebration, may have contributed to the confusion, uncertainty, ignorance, laxity, and heterodoxy in the realm of marriage and family. My essay tests this hypothesis in five areas. First, the suppression or marginalization of key scripture texts in the Reformed lectionary. Second, the advance of feminism and egalitarianism in liturgical ministries. Third, the doctrinal and spiritual deficiencies of contemporary church music and other sacred arts. Fourth, the disconnect between the church's exalted doctrine and the horizontal anthropocentric ars celebrandi of wedding ceremonies. And fifth, the almost total loss of asceticism in connection with the reception of Holy Communion. If the argumentation is cogent, it follows that the church today must take much more seriously the urgent need for a reform of the reform, as well as the promotion of the traditional form of the Roman rite, which is unencumbered with the foregoing difficulties. Thank you. Finally, we have Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Biblical Theology. My essay is entitled Pharisaism and Marriage, and my abstract differs from what's in the uh, handout um, slightly. 
In current discussions on marriage within the Catholic Church, it has at times been asserted or implied that those who support the Church's standing doctrine and practice on marriage have a pharisaical attitude toward those who have divorced civilly and attempted a remarriage. This stated or implied accusation of pharisaism is inaccurate and highly ironic. The following points need to be made. First, the majority of the Pharisees had few or no objections to divorce and remarriage, but Jesus did. Secondly, Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees is widely misunderstood. Jesus preached greater, not less, moral rigor than the Pharisees. Our Lord did not criticize the Pharisees for high moral standards, but for using religious legal reasoning to avoid the demands of the moral law. Thirdly, the defense in principle and in practice of the indissolubility of marriage has nothing in common with the Pharisees, who did not view the institution as indissoluble. However, the proliferation of canonical means to dissolve an existing union and create a new one does formally, at least, resemble the approach to marriage that came to dominate in Pharisaism. Thank you. Let us join together in thanking our panelists. This brings us to the question and answer portion of this event. Please feel free to pose your question to any member on the panel, including His Eminence Cardinal Burke, or if you would like to ask your question to no particular person on the stage, that is fine too. Due to short notice of their issuance, I would like to ask you to refrain from asking about the two moto, motu proprios issued by the Pope Francis today. For those with questions, please form a line down an aisle with a microphone, here and here. In order to allow everyone to get a chance to ask a question, I would request that you ask one question only, and to please pose your question as succinctly as possible. When you have finished asking your question, please step aside for the next person in line. Thank you. We thank the panel. We thank Cardinal. Uh, I'm approaching the twilight of my years. I've been a Catholic all my life, and now I'm getting some questions. I think it's kind of late, late in life to be thinking about this. Uh, we watch and see what's happening. My understanding is that uh, the gay proposition is being tabled until the next meeting by the Senate. The Bishops from Africa were ignored. Hopefully they will be recognized this time. But what gets me on this marriage thing that's going on is we have this gay and lesbian thing going on. We have Catholic legislators pronounce themselves as practicing Catholics, and they support this. Where is excommunication? We have to speak out. We as Catholics have to speak out. We are told 
Sir, do you have a, a, a specific question for our panelists? Where do we stand? What are we going to do as Catholics? We, you know, we can talk about it, but our legislatures, the bishops aren't coming out. The priests want to be politically correct. They're scared to speak out, to be turned into their bishops. What stands are we as Catholics going to take? Thank you. And it's very clear what our response is. It's contained in, the, in Christ himself, the living Christ in the church, in the church's tradition. And I think that a good part of the difficulty today is that we've come off decades of, the, of a very vacuous and even erroneous catechesis so that many people do not understand their Catholic faith sufficiently to give an account of it. But we need to address that. It is being addressed here, I know, at the University of a very strong program on catechesis. But this is what needs to happen, and people who are well catechized will speak up. And uh, that's what has to happen. We, we, we have to be uh, clear and courageous. Thank you. Next question. Uh, this, this is for uh, Your Eminence. And I was wondering, uh, what do you think some uh, good practical ideas are to bring those who are in these so-called second marriages back into uh, communion with the church? Um, because, you know, of course, it's difficult to tell someone that they're living in a state of adultery and that they need to change the way they're living because, you know, they've obviously formed a deep bond with this person, even if it is sinful. So how would you uh, recommend that we best evangelize them and bring them back to the church? Thank you. Well, if in, indeed the uh, one or both parties are bound by a valid marriage, then one has to help them to, to live as friends. Uh, the, the brother and sister relationship has always been proposed by the church for people who find themselves in these situations. And we have the grace to live in fidelity to that marriage to which we are bound, and that would mean in the situation of those who are living in an irregular union, uh, a call to, to live a form of heroic chastity, but we're quite capable of that. That's not for the elite or only for certain people, and so we have to try to help those who are living in that situation to uh, live a chaste life. I've been giving presentations over the past year, especially, on marriage and the family, and I've encountered so many after these presentations so many individuals who've come up to me and told me how their spouse uh, uh, abandoned them at some point and how they find their joy even in the suffering which is involved with it in living in fidelity to that marriage. And uh, that's what we're called to do. And we have to be very helpful. We should be close to those who are divorced and remarried and, and try to help them. But it, it won't help them at all to say, well, it's just fine that you're you're, you're living as a husband and wife when you're not husband and wife. And so we have to try to help them to, to deal with that situation in a very understanding way, but in a way that, that, that assists them to draw on the grace which God gives to come out from that sinful situation. Okay, thank you for your question. Next question. I have a, I have a question for your eminence. You had talked about how in the United States there was kind of a waving of a process before 1983 and it kind of led to what was perceived as a divorce mentality. Is that going on in the rest of the world? 
Like in, I've learned that in the United States, maybe where half the population of the Catholics live, the tribunals issue annulments to like 98% or more of the people. That's not in the whole United States, but that's a lot of the United States of the petitioners that get their petitions granted. Is the rest of the world the same way? It, uh, it could only be practiced in those uh, areas which received also permission for these what were called special procedural norms. But it did have a certain influence in the Anglophone world. But uh, it's not, not true for the other parts of the world. In fact, one of the difficulties which I was trying to address in the Apostolic Signature I've been trying to address is there are a number of places in the world in which there are no tribunals, even though there are hundreds of cases of petitions for declaration of nullity of marriage. We're trying to urge bishops to establish tribunals. But the situation in the United States was particularly uh, aggravated, and it, it behooves us to look at that now when these same ideas are being proposed. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is addressed to uh, His Eminence or anyone else on the panel. Um, I read the entire Instrumentum Laborious. I read the whole thing. And, you know, meaning no disrespect to anyone who was involved with it, but what I sensed was a lack of the supernatural in the document, even though it was kind of permeated with God talk. Uh, a tremendous amount of verbiage and also uh, a lot of what you would, you know, a lot of um, we have to have more committees, we have to have more programs, we have to, is there any way, is there any reason why the documents are written th that way and is there any chance of, you know, in the future having these documents kind of have a more scholastic and Thomistic approach that is more organized and with respect not as exhausting to read? Thank you very much for your question. <laughs> we, we can pray to, to uh, St. Jude for that. That's, that's an act. Of course, of course I'm a Thomist, so that would be my aspiration as well. But. They don't ever call me to help write these documents. <laughs> this question would be addressed to the, the whole panel. Um, as a religious, I would be very interested to hear any of your input as far as what would be maybe the single greatest contribution that we as religious could make both to the family and to the strengthening of the marriage bond and the marriage, the covenant? What, what can we contribute to this? What would you see as our greatest contribution? I think, I think your very existence is your greatest gift to this. Several of us have spoken, um, including His Eminence, about the loss of a kind of, um, of a sense of, of holiness and asceticism. And, and every religious 
is an example to all of us that in fact the Lord is faithful and provides the grace to live the Christian life. Yeah. Thank you. I just want to follow that. I mean, we look at the explicit teaching of St. John Paul II. He says, those who are continent for the kingdom show us all that the power and love of God bear the fruits of redemption, which will have their fullness in heaven, but bear those fruits here and now. And that's what we married couples really need to believe, okay? So you show us that, that the power and love of God is, is bearing the fruits of redemption now, not just in the eschaton. And also, if I may add, penance. Those of you who, who live a special charism of penance perform an incalculable service to us. So penance, penance. <laughs> and and fi finally, finally, for, for I would add, um, I see you are a Carmelite. I think prayer, we need your prayer more than anything. I think in this situation, prayer can help to bring all this to a good end, to bring the Synod to a good conclusion. So we thank you for that. A number of the comments that have been made are actually codified in the Code of Canon Law. <laughs> I have to get my plug in there somehow. But the, the, your primary apostle as a religious, and all of us who are religious, is the witness of your consecrated life. And the way in which you demonstrate dying to self, faithfulness, fidelity to prayer, and all of the things that are asked of you by your mother superior and all those who uh, lead and guide you, speaking as the voice of Christ to you, showing others that this fidelity is possible and can be lived in a very joyful way. Thank you. God bless all of you and this university. I want to ask the gentleman that uh, spoke about divorce being a sin. You largely confined your uh, comments today on the theological and the canonical aspect of marriage, but there is a civil aspect. I never heard that before that divorce could be sinful, uh, objectively. Um, but uh, some divorces could be uh, almost completely the fault of one person. And, and although the church has always taught with St. Paul that we should, between Christians, try to solve our conflicts not legally, but pre-legally, uh, couldn't it be possible that uh, someone, in order to divide the property properly, <laughs> uh, seek a divorce uh, on that occasion without being sinful? Thank you for your question. Yeah, it's a very good question, and you point out part of the reason why we often shy away from discussing the evil of divorce is because a lot of the complexities, divorce can mean something of a civil law, it can mean something a natural law, it can mean something from a simple perspective of moral theology. But to, to get to the heart of the answer to your question, I'm speaking of divorce as this choice to revoke the marital status uh, and to really say you're no longer my wife, you're no longer my husband, it's, it's a form of discarding that person, but it's also then a form of, of denying the marital status, which should be based on a gift of self, which is based on the intrinsic value of the person. Um, now, without, with, with all due compassion to everyone involved, but especially with compassion to anyone who is discarded in that way, 
we want to point out that such a discarding is evil, such a saying, you're no longer my wife because you've lost the worth that would give you that status. This, this is the affront to the dignity of the person. But we do have a provision within all of the theology and the canon law, and it should be in civil law, that separation without such a revoking of marital status and without such a discarding can prevent evils that need to be prevented, could perhaps arrange for the distribution of property that you mentioned. And so separation um, really affirms the value of the person by saying you can't lose your status as my wife or husband despite all the troubles we're having. And so not only does separation not speak against that value, but it upholds that value. But yeah, the, the, you'll, you'll see in the catechism that where divorce is the only legal recourse, a change of civil status, while still acknowledging in your heart and, and otherwise that this person is your spouse, can be allowed. But that's just a problem of civil law. We ought to be able to accomplish all that's needed to be accomplished with a separation, a civil separation. And that's what's called for in canon law, that there be a separation without a dissolution of the marital relationship. Dr. Kozniaski, how does the feminization of liturgy and its current horizontal practice relate to the weakening of the family and marriage? I'm convinced that the traditional practices of the faith emphasized very strongly the distinctiveness and the complementarity of man and woman. And one such traditional practice was the confinement of liturgical ministries to men. That is to say, uh, the confinement of, of the roles that are going to be exercised in the sanctuary of the church, which is separated from the nave, uh, to, to men. And so, in my opinion, uh, which may be controversial here, but in my opinion, um, I think that the church has actually allowed practices that have led to some of the uh, confusion about sexuality and gender that we are seeing in the world today. Unfortunately, since we have another scheduled event here tonight, we're going to have to have this be our last question. Uh, this question is for your eminence. Uh, there's reference to John the Baptist and St. John Fisher as being martyrs for the faith. Um, and excuse the Barbara Walters type question, but do you feel you're up for the task <laughs> with what you're facing right now to actually be, it doesn't have to be a red martyr, but a white martyrdom, to be the martyr for the faith because you're one of the few cardinals to actually stand up and put a line in the sand and, excuse me for saying, but say, you're going no further. Let's say the synod goes further. Are you ready for that militant church and being our martyr? I, I, my approach is simply that every day to try to serve the church in the best way that I can and to stay the course. And that's my happiness in life and whatever else happens to me, I'll be happy if I can do that, if God permits me to, to serve him in that way. And I believe that was the attitude I've studied a bit, the life of St. John Fisher, 
to whom I have a special devotion as a bishop. And I think that was his attitude too. Uh, uh, we just simply do what the Lord is calling us to do day, day by day. And in these times, it's very challenging and difficult. Uh, and then trust that God will give us the grace that we need. But someone, I think it was um, Mrs. Crosby or someone said before that, I can't underline enough the importance of prayer and a lot of fervent prayer and also of sacrifices offered for the church in this particular moment and for ourselves that unless we have a very strong prayer life and unless many are praying for us and unless we mortify ourselves, we will not be strong uh, when the Lord is counting upon us. Well, on that note, we conclude our discussion for this evening. Let us together thank our panelists and our special guest, His Eminence, Cardinal Burke.